militaries are reflections of their society. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have uh, societal issues that drive people to commit suicide, it's reflected in the military. friends to the fourth season of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community. This season we're looking at grief in its various forms and we'll be looking at the role of trauma as it affects grief. Today's program is Grief in the United States Military. Here with us today to discuss this is our guest Steve Gambeckler. In segment one we'll learn who Steve is. In the second segment Steve will tell us about suicide in the military, and in the final segment, Steve will tell us about how the military reacts to trauma. Steve Gambeckler is a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He was an Army aviation officer and has served for 32 years from 1985 to 2018. Steve deployed for Operation Iraq Freedom in 2003, invasion of Iraq, and then he deployed again in 2006 to Iraq. Steve is father to two boys aged 21 and 18. Steve's 18-year-old just joined the U.S. Air Force. He's 52 years old, he's a disabled vet who likes sushi, and is a lover of scotch. He's also a Toastmaster. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Let's start with you telling us about why you joined the military. Well, in 1985, I was a young 18-year-old, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, and an opportunity presented itself to join the Army Reserve, and I jumped at it, and... 32 years later, I quit. So I don't know that I would I have like the classic, you know, big, big thought reasons for joining the military. I think at that time I was just looking for something interesting to do and being a medic in the army sounded pretty cool. So you, you've joined the military. Uh, you went in as a medic. How did you get into airplanes? How did that happen? That's a long way off. Well, later on in my career, I was a young medic and I ended up getting a chance to work in the back of medevac helicopters for a bit. And that, to be honest, you know, the guys that I were was flying with were clean and they got a really good view in the front seat of the aircraft. And I was not clean and had a lousy view in the back of the aircraft. And they looked like they had a better job than I did. And so I was inspired to fly. My grandfather had flown in World War II as well. So I thought, you know, flying was something I'd always been interested in, but I didn't really think it was a possibility. And then at that point, the Army gave me the opportunity to go be a pilot, so I jumped at it, and I I was really lucky. I think that's one of the things that most people don't really appreciate about the military. It's, it's you know, there, there's a lot of luck involved, and I had a chance to do sure. something that I'd always wanted to do as a child. So I got commissioned in 1990 as an officer, and then, you know, immediately went to flight school because of the first Gulf War, and spent, you know, two years in flight school while my friends spent, you know, hundred days in Iraq. I'm in the Air Force and I'm, I'm former Air Force and I never knew a pilot whose answer was, I want to fly because I got a better seat in the front. <laughs> oh no, the view is awesome. Well, I imagine I've never actually flown. I was <laughs> lucky me. I was a filmmaker in the Air Force, but I never actually flew, but uh, I can imagine it's awesome. I've seen the pictures where I served the service was mandatory. And when I was a kid in the U S until 1971, or I think 71, 72, so service was mandatory. What well, is it that makes that makes no, the military that attractive? One of the things I think is that you know it is a different way of life. You get a chance to do things that you might not normally get to do. And you know, for instance, you know, if, had I not joined the military, I don't know that I would have been an EMT or a or a paramedic. Yeah. 
I don't know. I definitely don't think I would have been a pilot. Um, I didn't have the grades in school for it, and I just definitely wasn't uh, in a position to to fund it myself. So, you know, becoming a military aviator was pretty much the way I was going to be a pilot. And I know that a lot of kids, a lot of kids join for a lot of different reasons. In the United States, we have insane benefits. You know, when I listen to friends oh, yeah, of mine sure. whose children aren't in the military or haven't done the military, but they're complaining about not being able to pay for college or they're complaining right. about, you know, not knowing where their healthcare is going to come from or, you know, or they just have no direction and they don't really know what they want to do besides, you know, flip a burger at a burger store. You know, they, right. they, it's interesting to me that, that you know, I look at them and go, you know, there's this place where you walk into a room, you sign a piece of paper and they're going to give you a four year degree if you ask for it. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to give it to you. I mean, you have to work for it, but they're going to pay for it. They'll fund it. So we have a raft of benefits that go with having been in the volunteer military, which I think is probably part of the reason why we are able to front the military. We are. Then there's just the fact that it's a, a life. You know, you go in for that first four years or you know, three to four years and you get a taste of it. Some people, when they've had that taste of it, they're like, well, this is actually not bad. I like this. I like the environment. I like the people I work with. I like mm-hmm. the fact that there's a defined set of rules. I like the fact that I get to do things that normal people just read about in books. And so yeah, sure. there's that, that group of people and, you know, the military is not a monolith. You have all sorts of different jobs in the military. So, you know, people who go into the combat arms will be, you know, really attracted to the rough, hard life of being a soldier. I totally get all of that because uh, I had a friend in the U S and she was deciding to go to medical school and the Air Force contacted her and said, if you want to come with us, uh, we'll pay for it. But then you've got to stay with us for seven years. So she turned that down, which I can't believe she did. Uh, when I was in graduate school in New York, um, this is in the mid 80s, um, I was very tempted because it's a very attractive offer. And I, I think personally, after having been in the military for as short a time as I was, uh, it affects the way you work when you're not in the military. Oh, absolutely. Uh, chain of command in the office place becomes very important to you. And doing a job and being orderly and having things done properly becomes very important. There are a lot of benefits, side benefits that you pick up in the Army that people always are not always aware of. No, absolutely. I mean, you could uh, cultural change. And I, I call it, you know, changing your perspective. If you've woken up in the morning and you're freezing cold and, you know, somebody's trying to shoot at you when you show up to the office a year or two later and, you know, the worst <laughs> thing that's happened is you got a paper cut. You know, you're going to really definitely you look at that paper cut a little differently. And I find that people who don't, who didn't have that experience tend to get a little overly emotional about things. They're not being overly emotional. They just, my frame of reference, I look at them and go, yeah, Yeah. you're not dying. Rub dirt in it. You're fine. Seriously. Besides just getting a better seat in the plane, what makes you want to be a pilot? That is probably one of the most complicated things in the world that a person can do. The best way to describe it is you know, without being overly crass is that, you know, you can't really have more fun in your life. You get to, you know, strap into a piece of equipment and take it off the ground and then fly across the ground at 120 miles an hour, close enough that you're flying around the trees and cattle, not over them. And, you know, it's, so if, if you like going fast, it's, it's a fun thing to do. Uh, the sense of accomplishment is really amazing, especially when you're flying for real and flying, you're flying yeah. solid profiles and missions and you're doing something interesting. One of the things that's really interesting is I've had somebody describe a room full of pilots as being in a room full of people with ADD. 
<laughs> primarily because it's the one thing that can keep our attention. You know, it really filled. I don't have, you know, a deficit of attention. I have entirely too much, and you're just not that interesting. So I'm going to have a hard time paying <laughs> attention when you're done. And in large measure, that's, you know, it's, it's necessary because it's an environment where when things go wrong, you don't have time to be scared. You have to be able to fly the airplane until it hits the ground. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Hi, my name is Jamie Alcroft, and I just published my new book, The Tin Man Diaries. It's an amazing story of my sudden change of heart as I went through a heart and liver transplant. I can think of no better way to read The Tin Man Diaries than to cuddle up in your favorite Hearts Unite the Globe sweatshirt and your favorite hot beverage, of course, in your Hearts Unite the Globe mug, both of which are available at the Hug Podcast Network online store, or visit heartsunitetheglobe.org. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at Michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. Steve, when we were talking in our pre-interview, we talked about how suicide in the military is a really tough topic to talk about. Can you tell me about your experience in dealing with suicide in the military? How prevalent is it? Because I think we may think it's bigger than it is. Do you think there's something about being in the military that might push somebody towards suicide, or is it more a function of what they bring with them? The one thing I'll say is that when people join the military, no matter what military it is, they bring whatever their life had before to the military. Mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, I think there's a, a prevalence, especially with young people um, in our society, for people to, we call it, you know, taking a permanent solution to a temporary problem because they seem like their problems are insurmountable when they're really not. But unfortunately, one of the problems with being in the military is we have a tendency to have a culture of toughness, if you will, that you don't complain about your problems. You don't talk about your challenges. You just live with them and, you know, make it work. And it's very difficult to be allowed inside yourself to go seek help and look for a uh, look for help outside the military. The military, when we first started the war in Iraq, wasn't really well postured for taking care of people like that. And, you know, going to seek mental, mental, mental health services was something you just didn't do and had negative con- or consequences to your career. Was this so, also just a macho thing as well, or is it really a no, career? No, no, it was a macho thing. That's absolutely a macho thing. And, and, and then there was the, you know, implications for your career and... Mm-hmm. You know, pilots, pilots alone, they, they, we just don't go to the doctor because when you go to the doctor, you get grounded and there's nothing lower than a grounded pilot. So right. if you, if you avail yourself of those services, that's bad. It's taken a lot of 
changes in the military and American military, adding mental health services that weren't there before, as well as trying to just change that culture of not seeking out help. And even then we still have problems with that. Let me, let me ask you, is that perceived as a possible trap by a pilot because the military in good faith offers the service? Absolutely. But if you take the service, are you hurt? Yes, you can be. And unfortunately, and so, and it's a, it's a catch 22 and it's not, that sounds bad when you look at the army that way, but the reality is that you don't want someone in the cockpit who has, you have a question of whether or not they're going to be able to capable of doing the job. However, that sets them up in a situation where if they have a problem, they really have a hard time going to seek out help. So, and they really might not be capable of doing the job, which is a tremendous expense to the air force. so, So getting, getting, you know, that, that is, that is a, a challenge. That's a problem. And I don't have a good answer for it. I really don't. I, I know that, you know, trying to find a way to allow people to, to talk about their challenges, talk about their problems in a safe environment. You know, we, it's easy to put lip service to that, but then you're talking with human beings, but on both sides of the, on both sides of the equation, the, the leadership of the organization, plus the individual in the organization. So, and then, you know, in the, in the two cases that I personally experienced, you know, one individual had had challenges for his entire life and he had taken every class we'd ever given about not doing, not committing suicide and all that stuff. And he still decided to commit suicide. And then the other individual had some major happen in his life and that was his exit. And in both cases, you know, again, we had many, many, many sitting in a room with a bunch of people listening to someone tell you about not committing suicide because you have family problems. So the the military, I think, has done as best they can in terms of trying to uh, mitigate, you know, suicide in the military. But I think, too, that, that you know, so militaries are reflections of their society. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have uh, societal issues that drive people to commit suicide, it's reflected in the military. And it's a small, insular community. It's terrible. There's no no way of quantifying tragedy. You know, when one person commits suicide or 10 people commit suicide, it's it's a tragedy. You said that, you know, people bring what they are to the military. Uh, and if somebody might be suicidal before he gets there, then it's, you know, no wonder that, you know, he'll still be suicidal while he's there. Does the army have anything to do with being the trigger? It really depends on what they're what they do when they're there. I mean, if you get sent into combat, it will put a whole additional set of baggage if you brought baggage with you. So if you right. walked in with three suitcases, you can walk out with, you know, more than a dozen pretty quickly. Oh. And they're all very big and they're hard to get over. You have guilt over, you know, surviving the experience. You have right. guilt over making mistakes. It's, it's you know, definitely one of those things that, that can add to your problems. But life experiences do that. And the the big challenge I see is that, you know, trying to work with people who have mental illness, being able to understand their, where they're coming from, make sure, making sure that they get the help that they need. And that's, that's huge. Telling somebody it's okay to, to seek out help, making it okay for them to seek out help. Yeah, but I think with the problem here is on the one hand, you have the military that says it's okay to seek out help. We'll give you that help. But there are other decision makers along the way who are not part of that mental health system in the military who say, oh, mental health, X. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. But that's that's a societal issue. I mean, we talk about, you know, one of the big stories here is that there have been veterans who commit suicide at the in the parking lot of the VA. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
the big bureaucracy that is the Veterans Administration is at best, uh, you know, it, it, they, there's not, I've not met anybody in the VA who does not care, but I've met a ton of people who are overwhelmed because they've had to care too much and they spend all their time caring and they see nothing but tragedy every day and eventually they just get numb to it. And I think that, uh, you know, we've come a long way in the decade plus of, of fighting this conflict that we're in now to helping people who have gone through that experience uh, with their challenges much better than we did during, during the Vietnam War. But I think that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's more of a personal thing. And if you have someone in your life as a veteran, somebody who's struggling with their experiences, the best you can do is be understanding and make sure they know it's okay to get help. They know it's okay to seek out people like themselves who can talk about how to experience, how to survive the experience. When you come into the army, there are certain things that you have to buy into. This is what I'm expected to be. This is what a soldier is. This is how life will be until I leave. What are some of those things that you have to get into? What are the, some of those beliefs that you have to adopt immediately? I think one of the biggest challenges most people when they first come into the military struggle with is the idea that the whole is more important than the part and you're the part. So, really? you know, I look at people all the time and smile and say, hey, you know what? You don't matter. And if you don't think you matter and you think the person next to you matters more than you do, the, everybody's going to be taken care of because the person next to you is going to be doing the exact same thing. And I know especially – I would, think, I would think that's basic to being in the Army. I mean that's where you, they, you what you wear. That, they call but, it a uniform right? yeah, to make everybody the that, same. You know what? But you think about it. You come from the United States. So this is a society where the individual reigns supreme and everybody worries about themselves and, and everybody's worried about how they feel and, how, and, and, you know, getting theirs. And suddenly you find yourself thrust into an environment where you're in a room with 40 other people and you're all supposed to take care of each other. And that's a large chart. That's a large chunk of basic training is teaching you to be that way. I'm not a big military guy and I'm, 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 and I don't think that's a secret, but I think one of the best things about uh, uh, a, a draft, about a conscripted military is that everybody has to learn that lesson. Your life depended on the person next to you and if, you know, and their life depended on you. And that's why we tend to tell people that, you know, you come home and you're closer to them than you are to your own family because your family can't understand. When you're dealing with the person next to you as an equal, as far as your family is, is your own left arm, your right arm, and that person commits suicide, what happens to the body? What happens to the rest of you? Or is there survivor's guilt? And I know in in my case, no, you're angry because you you look at somebody and go, hey, look, dude, you had you know my phone never rang. Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you reach out to me? Why did you decide to do this without talking to me? Because we're all there. Not a one of us wouldn't have talked to you. And I know in the one case. I had spent the preceding Friday with the individual and he had, you know, he and I had gone and done something together and he never indicated there was an issue. And he, you know, literally a week later I was carrying him to his grave and I'm thinking to myself, dude, I had better things to be doing on my Wednesday. Why the hell did you do this? So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. And, you know, I've dealt with people who didn't commit suicide, who had major problems and could have gone that way. And they did pick up a phone and call me and, or call somebody else. And, and in my case, I was, you know, awake at, you know, two in the morning at a VA hospital with somebody who thought they were feeling better because they were getting sober. And I looked at them and said, dude, you haven't slept well in a month and you don't, you know, sleep without drinking. And, you know, 
when was the last time you felt okay? And he finally looked at me and said, yeah, I probably need to stay here. I'm like, yeah, you probably need to stay here. It's difficult to get people to reach into those unpleasant places and talk about them. But there's such a wide network of people who would be more than happy to stay up all night if necessary to help a friend. I was five hours old when I had my first surgery. The only advice I can really give someone like that is to be there for your family. This is life and you have two choices. You either live it or you sit in a corner and cry. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. Join us on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time on Spreaker, our blog talk radio. We'll cover topics of importance for the congenital heart defect community. Remember, my friends, you are not alone. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsuniteTheGlobe.org, and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Steve, you talked to us in a pre-interview about how the military reacts to trauma. You mentioned a time when you were overseas and a lot of people were killed. Tell us about how the Army reacts to battles that, that they've lost in war. Just doing what we do. You have a tendency of losing people. I knew even before I, we went to the war in 2003 and before 9-11, I had ranked, I think I'd lost two or three friends by that point just to accidents in my profession. So, you know, grief is something that we're used to. You know, we have the chaplain corps in the army mm-hmm. who, you know, they come to you and from a faith-based perspective and can talk to you about your experiences. And, and But now after the duration of the time that we've been in the military or we've been at war, again, we have mental health services on the installation you can go talk to. We have what we call resiliency centers where they have folks that are just sitting around waiting to have a cup of coffee with you and let you vent your spleen, talk about how you feel. And it's, uh, you know, and then we have ceremonies. I mean, when we lost uh, a bunch of friends of ours at one time, you know, you have a memorial service, you know, at the unit, and then you have memorial services back home. And, you know, then you go through the funerals, uh, I know in my case, I went through funerals for over a year because you know they buried they buried each individual and they buried the 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 they have a communal grave in Arlington for the 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 rest. And so it's you know you have all these opportunities in that you you know we do the normal things that people do when you lose a person in your life, you know go through the funeral experience to get closure and try to move on. I uh, know in my case, you know, in most of our, I think most people's cases, they stay with you forever. It's not like these people ever go away. You just learn to live with it and learn to, you know, cope. But unfortunately, you know, especially in the profession of arms, you can lose a lot of people and a lot of your friends at one time. So there's also the things that happen like survivor guilt, trying to figure out why it was them and not you. And 
you know, if you go back and look at the, a lot of the literature for people who have written about this, because you know, it's happened so often in human history, it's pretty common. How much of this do you think is a function of because it's a volunteer army and soldiers have to go around so many times? Yeah, that, that's definitely the one thing that's different for our experience now um, is that we have been doing this for so long time that you're now in the generation of people who, I mean, I'm in the second generation, you know, having my son join the military now, the war's not over. We're still, we're still there. I mean, if you look at the news yeah. today, they're still storming the gates at the Baghdad embassy. And and yeah. so, you know, this has been a generational experience. And it's our first generational experience with a all volunteer military. Nobody who who's there, you know, was compelled. Everybody who's there raised their right hand and repeated after everybody else. Now their motivations may have been across the board, but the bottom line is nobody was compelled. Yeah, but and I mean in Vietnam you knew you could see the end of the tunnel was four years down the line and you were going home. Here, the end of the tunnel is retirement. This is hard to explain to people who don't understand this, but there is an attraction to doing this. Especially once you've done it once. You want to go back. I mean even now I'm retired, but I would go back in a heartbeat. Because there is a realness to it, a reality to it that this place I'm in now doesn't even begin to touch. And everything you do matters. Everything that you're experiencing at that moment is more intense. And that is insanely difficult to explain to people. More, I, I only did two trips. I know people who have done five and six trips in their career. Right, that's what you hear about. And, and they volunteer. It's not like they're told. They volunteer to go. They want to be there. In a way, I really do understand that because it is almost like being in a bubble, but it's a complete way of life. It's all there. Everything you need or everything you want is in front of you in a way that you can access it. Like I said, it just seems more real. And you come here and, yeah. you know, there you're worried about whether or not the person you're sitting, you see you're on the ground, you're flying over, or shooting at you. Here you worry about whether or not your latte has enough foam on it. And... It's really harsh to say that and people listen to you go, oh man, you're just, you know, how arrogant. I'm like, no, really, seriously, you don't get it until yeah. you've done that, until you've lived that experience. That speaks to the difference between army culture and, and American culture as a whole. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't blame the people who worry about their lattes if that's their life, right? Um, your life, my life might be different because of experiences in the military. But how do we bridge that gap? How do we convince Americans as a whole that we do these things so that they can worry about their latte? When I sit there and I, I look at people, especially who have never had to leave the country, who've never had to, you know, not just traveling, going to nice places, but going to some of the worst places on the planet mm -hmm. and explain to them, you have no idea why this is better because you've never left the walls of the Magic Kingdom here. You're still living in the Magic Kingdom. You don't understand that mm -hmm. your life is magical because you've never experienced anything else. I remember when I was in Kuwait, I was walking from between buildings and I saw about four gentlemen in a hole digging with shovels, something that we would use industrial equipment here to do. Right. And it was 115 degrees outside. They're all dressed in, you know, long pants and long shirts and kefas and they're sweating, they're dying. And so I went in to go get some water and bring bottles of water out to him because, you know, I felt kind of bad for him. And more to the point, I was trying to learn, I was practicing Arabic, which I speak very badly. And I started talking to them and they're all Palestinians. 
And they're on an American military base in the middle of Kuwait, digging a hole in 117 degree heat because that's the best opportunity they had. Mm. And so when you come back from those kinds of experiences and you're standing behind someone in the line of Starbucks and they're ber- berating the barista because he failed to, you know, foam their latte enough, it's difficult not to reach I, out I and try that. to just do something really mean to them. Because you're like, Dude, Let's you're not be mean. But I served in the Israeli military and you served in the American military. And, and I think that the fundamental difference, the people that we are serving is that in Israel, people's homes and families literally really are on the line. Yeah, um, absolutely. In America, people don't feel the closeness of the war. They say what happens over in Iraq happens over in Iraq, and I don't really care. It doesn't really affect me. Whereas in some countries like here, it's very much a part of your life. And that will always be a problem as long as America is really, really, really big and can keep the things that that hurt us really, really very far away, which is a good thing, except that people then lose their perspective. And I think that's where we're at. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on Heart to Heart. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Michael. I want to thank Steve Gambetler for sharing his stories, his experiences, and so much more with us. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast, and I will talk with you soon. Until then, please remember, moving forward is not moving away. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories.